All right, so uh, welcome everybody. It's a pleasure to see you uh, and a great pleasure to welcome uh, the speaker, the paper presenter, Dr. Ferdi Bordewil, who I actually failed to ask how you would like me to introduce uh, you. I mean, you're, you're, you're in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, what's your official title? I'm an assistant professor of contemporary Arab cultures right, in right. the Department of Asian Studies. Yes, and, uh, and Fadi's written this fabulous PhD on the trajectories of uh, especially activist and socialist uh, intellectuals in Lebanon from the 70s to the present. It's coming out as a book soon. Do you, ha do you have a publisher in mind for that? I'm in conversation with a <coughs> publisher. Yeah. Right, right. And, uh, I'm in conversation <laughs> with a publisher. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so, no, but it's a real pleasure to, to welcome him here because, um, you know, he's somebody who really knows his subject and, and uh, you know, this whole, whole question, especially uh, um, the intellectual uh, activism in the qu around the left and the democratic left uh, is, is heavily underwritten, in my view, in, in Middle East studies and history. So, anyway, this is an important intervention, so I'm very much looking forward to it. And... Uh, uh, my name is John Chowcroft. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Government. I work on the Middle East and North Africa and on migration and labor and social movements and contentious politics. And this is the seminar series, uh, Social Movements and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. We have uh, occasional seminars. There's a sort of research network as well, which has a, a list serve. If you would like to sign up, you're very welcome. Just send me an email, you can Google my name, John Chowcraft, LSE, uh, and um, uh, a big welcome to you for coming. And you know that the setup is um, that you've, you've, had, you've had this paper, you've taken a look at it, and, uh, and so the idea is that we get to discuss it properly uh, in this uh, convivial format. And, uh, and so we begin with 10 minutes from Dr. Fanny Barrewil, then, or 10 to 15 minutes, he's allowed to present his paper for. Uh, and then, we, uh, it's a, a pleasure to welcome also Fuad Musallam as discussant. And he's going to speak for 10 to 15 minutes as well. Uh, and uh, Fuad is a, a PhD student in the, jointly with, uh, well, with the Department of Anthropology, but also he has a co-supervisor of me in the Department of Government, and he's working on... Uh, contemporary activism in Lebanon, uh, and so um, um, it's a, it's actually I think it's a super appropriate uh, discussion for this paper. So thanks very much to you for coming too. Looking yeah. forward to this. So um, um, I think that oh yes no, but I would also like to thank very much Sandra Svea who's sitting here and from the Middle East Centre as well for organising this. Uh, and maybe before, maybe I'll announce the next event in the seminar series before we get started, so it doesn't distract you at the end from the from the, the general momentum of this particular discussion. But it's um, it's some, it's uh, Marie Duboc who's coming uh, on the 25th of February, and she's someone who's done a PhD on the labour movement in Egypt, and uh, and is converting that into a book and uh, the labour movement from 2004 to the present. So, um, all right, I don't think there's anything else to say, except uh, let's welcome Fadi in the traditional way and turn the floor over to him. All right, thank you, thank you all, thank you John for this very kind 
invitation. Uh, I just arrived a couple of hours ago at Heathrow, so I've been <laughs> sort of uh, on my jet in my jet lag mode. But I've had a double shot of espresso and I'm like rolling. So here's here's a couple of things on um, this project overall that sort of will uh, make you get the problem space, the kinds of questions I'm trying to answer that this paper is, is part of. Uh, this project sort of started a decade ago, around the time of the invasion of Iraq, when there was a lot of fuss in the Arab sort of newspapers about what were called Arab liberals that were mostly uh, Marxists in the 60s and the 70s, and were uh, either not against the sort of uh, you know U.S. invasion of Iraq or neutral, but they were at least let's put it this way, critical of the sort of family of anti-imperialist languages that sort of like hang all the ills that are part, you know, all the ills of the Arab world on external agents. And I started to sort of look at their trajectories start from, you know, from that point backwards. And what I ended up doing is actually a history of the generation that co came to constitute the new left in the Levant, but focusing mostly on uh, Lebanese intellectuals, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. A generation that was mostly born in the late 30s, early 40s. So uh, a Syrian name that's very well known would be Saad uh, Ejlal al-Azm. Amongst the Lebanese, uh, Ahmed Baydoun, Fawaz, Rabulsi, Waddah, Sharara, the people who are basically talking about here amongst the Palestinians, there were Faisal Darraj. And I reconstituted their trajectories from, I mean, their, their political awakenings were really with, with Nasser, and a lot of them dabbled with the Ba'ath for a while, or were part of the Arab nationalist movements, and they exited from Arab nationalism into Marxism in the early 60s, and uh, one of the sort of, at least for a lot of them, one of the pivotal moments that is not at all talked about in the literature, sort of focuses on 67, the defeat of the Arab armies against Israel in 67 as the sort of turning point, is actually the, the secession of the union between Egypt and Syria in 61. That's when, for a lot of them, what was called an Arab nation came to be called into question. And the move into Marxism was in a way a move towards understanding what is it that these societies that claim to be an Arab nation are constituted of. So in, if, you if you want, it's, an, it's a classical Marxist move from the nationalist contradiction of us against the foreigner being the imperialist to the internal class contradiction that's inherent in these societies. So they moved. Waddah Sharara, for example, as a teenager, dabbled with the Ba'ath. Fawaz Trabulsi was a member of the Ba'ath. Ahmad Baydoun was very close to the Arab national movement, nationalist movement. So around the 60s, they sort of like moved out into Marxism and out of sort of like Arab nationalism as a radicalization of Nasser, as part of that first gen generation that, was, that grew in sort of like Nasser's shadow but was also critical of Nasser's, Nasser's project, critical from the left. I mean, people they read at the time and that were, I think, exceptional thinkers uh, were the sort of Egyptian Marxists. Uh, Samir Amin had just published his first book, L'Egypte Nasserian, under the pseudonym of Hassan Riyadh because he was still working within, with the Egyptian government. Anwar Abdel Malik had 
published basically his sort of like groundbreaking work, Egypte Société Militaire, Egypt and Military Society. All of these in the early in the early 60s, so a decade after the free officers came into power. And what Dahshar that I write about here is the one who translated a couple of years after it came out Anwar Abdul Malik's book into Arabic without putting his name on it. 64, they, found, they sort of found something which is called Socialist Lebanon, Lubnan Ishtiraki. A small group of school of Marxist militants, they had a few workers, but a lot of, a lot of militant intellectuals. If some of you are sort of, uh, I mean, a bit like maybe Socialismo Barbarie that was in, in France around that time, which had Claude Lefort, Cornelius Castoriadis, and uh, Jean-François Lyotard, a lot of people that would become basically famous theorists, always at Marxist group school that was sort of very much a hub of militant intellectuals. And they were working as internal critics of the Lebanese communist because they were non-Soviet, radically non-Soviet. And they were critics of the Lebanese communist party that was sort of revolving in, in the Soviet orbit. So 64 to 67, they were doing these skirmishes with the sort of LCP and the sort of Syrian Communist Party that, you know, that they're Stalinist, they don't know their marks, etc. 67 happens, and it's the defeat of the regimes, basically. And that's what the, I start this paper with, which 40 years later, what Dashara tells me that that was the peak of their mythification, because that's when they thought that their sort of, their politics, which was under the sort of like radar of national politics, at least in <laughs> Lebanon, that was sort of centered around, uh, you know, figures such as Kamal Jumblat and his ambivalence as a socialist and a feudal lord at the same time. After 67, and with the rise of the Palestinian resistance, what happened is that the Arab nationalist movement that had people like Mohsen Ibrahim, uh, George Habash, Naif Hawadmi in it, ra got radicalized into Marxism. Precisely because this was part of their autocritique of Nasser as, you know, as the defeat, the result of these military regimes that are petit bourgeois. And this is the era where sort of guerrilla warfare was put on the table as the appropriate means of struggle. So you move from struggling with conventional armies of states to, to guerrilla warfare. They got radicalized and they merged with socialist Lebanon. I mean, it was really sort of like a marriage of convenience because the ANM, the Arab nationalist movement, Harakat Qawmiyin al-Arab, had a large constituency. And they were on the lookout for Marxist theorists. And the Marxist theorists were isolated and they were on the lookout for a platform which had basically masses and, or, and organizational skills to work with. So out of this fusion came the Organization of Communist Action in Lebanon, which was very close to the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. This is, we're, we're around 19... 70 now. The text that I start this uh, piece with, Muqawamatan, Two Resistances, the Lebanese and Palestinian resistance, is precisely, if you want, the sort of the fruit of that union and of trying to theorize what would the impact of the Lebanese, the Palestinian resistance be on Lebanese national politics. And the theorization was as follows. The Lebanese mode of production is, a, is basically an economic mode of production that plays the role of a link between the imperial metropolitan centers and the sort of Arab countries. Uh, you know, if you want sort of like the, the Arab countries in the sort of, the, you know, let's say the Gulf and Syria. So the way it works 
is, is built on a paradox. It's completely economically integrated into the area. However, it wants to and seeks to maintain a political neutrality vis-à-vis the sort of the causes of the Arabs, which was the sort of like the Lebanese official regime's position at that time that we don't want to interfere in the Arab-Israeli struggles. So for them, the Palestinian resistance coming into Lebanon is going to be the catalyst, the detonator, the lever that's going to basically unmask this economic integration and political isolation of the Lebanese system, and it's going to sort of detonate it from the inside. And that's what that's what it was. That's what their theorization of the revolution was based on. I.e., if the Lebanese masses are not moving according to sort of socio-economic lines, because the left, in a sense, stood on two feet. There's, a, there's the national anti-imperial foot, and there's the sort of socio-economic exploitation foot. So their theorization was that Palestinian resistance is basically going to prop up the national question and look at these masses. There's 150,000 people walking in the funerary cortege of Khalil Jamal, who died in, in 68, the first martyr, and they are cursing the traditional Lebanese politicians and the Sunni Mufti of Lebanon. So there's something happening here. There's something. There's a new kind of political bond which is rearticulated. They thought, well, not on the basis of these traditional quote-unquote loyalties, whether they're familial, regional, or sectarian. Not only sectarian. Huh? So they could be monotheistic, regional as well. So the the so the theorization was, this is it. The Palestinian resistance is sort of like awakening these. Lebanese masses. And they predicted that there may be a civil war, but not one that's going to happen on a, on a sectarian basis. So that's, that's basically Mokawamata. A sort of a, a, a footnote to this, uh, they were very much uh, intellectually part of uh, a European and global mood that was reading Gramsci and, and reading Mao. In 1970, Amir uh, al-Hadith, Gramsci's modern prince, appeared in Arabic under the translation of Qais al-Shami and Zahi Shirfan. Qais al-Shami is Aziz al-Azmi. He's basically the student. I don't know if you know him. He's basically a, a, a historian, historiographer, and a scholar who is now at the Central European University in Budapest. And Zahi Shirfan is Waddah Shrara. This was the names they used to sign with. They translated Gramsci, Aziz al working from the English translation and Wadah from the French translation. So they're translations of translations. And if you're interested in questions of translations, I can talk about, about that because Marxist translations in the Arab world were for the most part translations of translations through French or through English. I mean, very rarely did people sort of like in Beirut translate from Russian or from German directly. But we, can, we, can, we could definitely talk about that. So they were translating Gramsci, and they were working within the problematic of how do we fashion, uh, how do we think whether there is something called a hegemony of the Lebanese ruling alliance, and whether we can build a counter-hegemony after the Palestinian resistance sort of like moved on the scene. Come the civil war, Wadah Sharara exits and writes this book called Wars of, Sub- Wars of Subjugation, which is a book which goes back on his Marxist past, and argues that basically power in Lebanon does not work according to the Gramscian model of hegemony. But it's a, base, it's a formal domination that works according to the Ibn Khaldun's logic of istitba' 
i.e. subjugation. It's a very simple it's a very simple idea, i.e. what he has in mind is that for example if I would like if let's say I am group X and I would like to sort of have power over group Y, the power I would like to have over them is a is a formal power that does not seek to cre create new subjects. I.e. does not seek to re sort of like to rework them internally. I just want to make them my subjects while keeping their own internal structure intact. So for example, if the Christians would like to have power in the Lebanese system, the way they would do this is by ensuring that there is a mass of sort of Sunni or like let's say Shia Muslims that's in alliance with them, but they don't really care about re-articulating the power relations internal to that Sunni or Shia mass as long as they have their support. So it's not, a, it's not a power that works according to ideological interpolation and a formulation of new sort of political subjectivities. You just subjugate formally certain groups of people. And for him, that was part, I mean, what's very, I mean, if some of you are interested in, uh, in South Asian subaltern studies, I mean, sort of Ranajit Guha's uh, book, was called uh, Domination Without Hegemony, which is exactly the claim that Odashara was making in sort of 78. It's exactly the same claim, that the power works as domination, not as hegemony in the Lebanese system. However, the difference between subaltern studies and, and these guys in Beirut is that subaltern studies claim that there is basically a continuity between colonial rule in South Asia and basically the, the, the South Asian bourgeoisie afterwards, which made, and, and that made that power that power relationship elitist, in a way, while the people in Beirut were sort of lamenting, if you want, the sort of the failure of the left and the failure of the Lebanese state in creating a hegemony that would create a, dialectically a counter-hegemony to it. I will stop here, but I, one, one last thing which has to do with the arc of the narrative, which I think is very important to sort of highlight. I mean, these uh, militant intellectuals in the Lebanese context exited from their their areas, their families, their sects into a modernist mode of politics, a, a very thick ideological mode of politics, which is Marxist politics. When they left their political parties, they didn't have anywhere else to go to. I.e., the political party was at the same time a space of sociality, a space of uh, amorous encounters, comrades intermarried a lot, a space of intellectual encounter for people who had exited from being a Shia from the south, a Christian from Mount Lebanon, a Druze from somewhere else. So when they left that party in the 70s, the only thing they were left with is that they were Lebanese citizens in a non-existent polis. They didn't have a public anymore. So the question is, like, when someone like what Dahshara in 79 is writing, who is the audience that he's writing to? From which position is he writing? When people are sort of, you know, segregated according to these class, class slash sect sort of, like, uh, distinctions. So it's interesting to think about also that, if you want, that, that dimension of, of, which I think is very important, the dimension of the kinds of, 
social bonds that were created in these parties and the multiple roles that these sort of political parties played for a generation of individuals that, again, exited from the places they were born into and then found themselves without any sort of any support. And some of them reverted back at work to working with, uh, for example, sectarian or religious figures. Uh, I mean, there's a few. There's a few of them, and others just, you know, remained, just like you know, in free-floating individuals, if you want, without any sort of mooring, precisely because that party and the, the 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 dream of the people was supposed to be that kind of mooring. But when that vanished, there's there's no sort of like ground that sort of like ground them. All right, I'll stop here. I mean, I have more to say, but I'll stop. Here. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, uh, and thank you, Fadi. I agree with John wholeheartedly that this is incredibly fascinating stuff. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, a lot of what I know from it actually comes from reading your PhD a couple of years back, so I might be uh, retreading your own ground and some of the stuff that I'm going to say. But I, I uh, just uh, if you speak a bit louder, yeah. please. Thank you. But I agree wholeheartedly that this kind of period that you're you're really talking about here, from from 1969 to 1979, overlaps the beginning of the Civil War is incredibly fascinating for, personally, the reason is that you can see these, these political possibilities and this hope and this ultimate frustration that kind of come through from this period, and particularly from, I mean, Wadah Sharara as, as a particular kind of archetypal figure of this, who kind of goes through these transformations of radicalization, radicalization, wonderful writing, and then ultimately this huge disillusionment, and as you said, being left with nothing, having exited one thing and then exited the other thing that he'd exited it for, where, where is he left? And that does, I think, very much colour the way in which he ends up writing. Yep. Um, and in particular, I think, the, the way you, you talk about two revolutions uh, is, is wonderful because it's an incredible text, uh, which kind of does so much work to kind of show the things that they were thinking through at the times, what they thought was possible, what was and what seemed so clear to them and what didn't, and the time frame is such that you can see within five, six years that all that stuff gets blown out of the water, and particularly the way in which they, form, uh, they formulate, or Wadah at least formulates, what a civil war would look like in that moment. Um, and as a kind of very brief aside to kind of my own kind of interest, it's fascinating how quite a lot of the things that you foreshadow here were still evident when I was doing my own research, this kind of talk about the failure of the left, and uh, to talk about not having a language apposite to be able to describe and diagnose the problems that you need to deal with and to search constantly yeah. for a platform and a mass base to be able to Absolutely. enact any of this politics is still absolutely there in, in Lebanon right now and I would I would hardly be surprised if it was the case outside of Lebanon as well in the Middle East. And all that is, is wonderfully kind of played out uh, in the narrative. And so I suppose that the kind of comments I have are loosely uh, divided into kind of two parts. And one is kind of my wondering about the emphasis of the chapter um, and another about kind of the structure and, and, and how you make the choices that you, that you do in terms of presenting this material. And the kind of emphasis question is kind of returning to your, your chapter title, Theorizing Revolution, Apprehending Civil War, because I was kind of wondering what you envisioned being the goal of this chapter, uh, particularly as in the email you said, you know, pages two to six are just this kind of background mm -hmm. stuff. It, it, by all means, kind of move beyond it. But the thing is, I, I find that stuff absolutely fascinating, and the stuff that I really find fascinating is this kind of phenomenology of what it must have felt like 
in that moment, post-67 and post the defeat in Mexico, uh, and before 1975, 1976, this kind of first two years of the Civil War, where some at least were kind of portraying it as a righteous mm -hmm. civil war before it kind of all descends into, into horror. Um, and I really, really wanted to know so much about how it must have felt in that moment. You get a lot of that from, from Sherada's writing and, and Two Revolutions. But I was wondering whether you had anything more that you could kind of bring out and kind of tell us about, about what it must have felt like then. And I suppose I'm thinking in particular of something like Halim Barakat's sociological work where he kind of does these, he did these fascinating uh, surveys of university students in Lebanon and kind of showing these huge numbers of how many were were in favor of, uh, of armed struggle, in favor of radical transformation of, of the state, were against the Lebanese state as an entity, it's all of this kind of stuff. This kind of milieu, which you bring out already by talking about, as you quite rightly said, 150,000 people who come out on the, on the march, and so, so, so clearly the milieu is there, but I would, I would love to have more of that, and kind of attending to those, those feelings and those political emotions that must have been running high at the time. Uh, and then the other thing is, and you, you brought it out again in European comments, this uh, interest in guerrilla warfare and this, this view of, of the transformative potential of violence uh, and politically righteous violence. Because again, it, it's absolutely there in the chapter, but I was, uh, I was wondering whether you had more to say about that because it seems such a, a, fundamental, a fundamental point, which is about their own, uh, who they were reading uh, and who they were looking to and where in the world they were looking to for their kind of antecedents for, for revolutionary change. But then obviously, as you say, the civil war and how it pans out is absolutely not the way that some of them would have hoped. And so I was wondering whether there's something to be said there about what happens to this, the hope attendant in violence and in political violence, what happens to that, particularly in the, the post-war period ultimately where violence then gets appropriated, if you like, by uh, groups that uh, perhaps people like Wadah Sherada, certainly somebody like Fawaz Trabosi wouldn't necessarily see as fellow travellers. And so those are kind of two two issues that I was quite interested in, in maybe hearing more about. Um, and then I had a couple of a couple of thoughts about the the kind of choices you make, if you like, uh, particularly in terms of following Sherada's arc, if mm -hmm. you like, uh, which which makes perfect sense given how archetypally is a figure of this kind of radicalization and then move away. Uh, but I was in particular interested in in where you choose to cut this kind of moment of, of retreat. Because obviously with Sharada, he, uh, he moves away before the beginning of the Civil War, and he, and he really kind of uh, decides he wants no part in that in the party and in the left anymore, and begins to move away and write against him, and all the stuff about subjugation. But then I was wondering, somebody like Fawaz Trabulsi, who absolutely doesn't do that, Fawaz Trabulsi goes through fighting, uh, and ultimately through fighting, coming to realize the futility of things, but that's far, far later, particularly certainly after you know the assassination of Kamaljan Blatt and that kind of first possible phase of the civil war ending. Um, and so I was interested, was interested to maybe hear your thoughts about choosing to, to I mean, for a start to cut in 1979 in terms of the end of the chapter, but also kind of cut where, where the the fall back and the move away from, uh, uh, from this kind of politics begins, uh, and for different people. Um, and there's another kind of auxiliary point, as opposed to that. I was wondering what you made of the role of the, the elections at the beginning of the, the decade in terms of uh, how that plays into the way in which the Civil War comes to be and the moment in which it comes to be. Because, of course, that's, that's mm -hmm. after 
shed out our rights uh, to revolutions. Mm. Uh, and was, I, I mean, I genuinely don't know, but I'd be interested to hear how that kind of plays mm. in, particularly mm. in terms of characters like Kamal Jambad arguing that actually th there was a mass and a base for this kind of radical change, and yet this wasn't reflected in the elections because of the way in which uh, the voting law was, mm. and so that therefore for him, the, the act of, of engaging in political violence was to attempt to circumvent and to force this kind of change from above. That's not quite the same formulation as Shirada's and Two Revolutions, but it's interesting that they, they do kind of meld together in terms of the people who are then involved on that side of, mm -hmm. of the conflict. Um, and then finally, as a kind of uh, more general point, I was wondering, um, I thought it was very interesting that in Wars of Subjugation, Sharara is explicitly moving away from that kind of language and that kind of analysis which he had spent so long writing and mm -hmm. perfecting and getting better at. Um, and it's interesting that he, if I've understood the way in which you, you, you give us a uh, description of it, he moves away because he doesn't feel that that language can in any way account for the ways in which power is actually working and, and the forms of power work in the labor situation. It seemed to me that that was based on a realization on his part or an acceptance that the kind of transformative politics which he had attempted to engage in for so long was simply never going to work or Absolutely. never could have worked. And so it returns almost to, to Ibn Khaldun in one sense, but also to a way of understanding how power and politics works in, in a place like Lebanon, mm -hmm. to attempt to explain how it could have never worked almost. Mm -hmm. And it seems interesting that sectarianism uh, and the ways in which power works through those kind of formats seems to be what he places as the thing that cannot be explained or dealt with by, by Marxist language, by, by the people he was thinking of before. But then I was wondering about somebody like Say Mahdi Amal, mm. and I, I honestly don't know the timelines whether the work in, in which Mahdi Amal talks about this stuff was either available at this time, and it was then published in full mm. kind of later, but I was wondering whether it was circulating at the time. But he does explicitly attempt to work through uh, the specificities of Lebanon as this kind of place in which this particular social dynamics that pertain, which it were not necessarily explained away by Marx or any of these other theorists and attempts to work those through in a Marxist language. And that seemed an interesting counterpoint to me to somebody like Sharada who, in, in attempting to explain those things, explicitly moves away from a Marxist language because there's no way in which it can be, it can be described there. Um, so those are all kind of things I kind of wanted to hear more about. Um, I've kind of got a couple of other smaller points, but I'd much rather kind of open things up. I kind of had one or two thoughts for how to kind of open up in terms of general themes that I think come through and, and one of them uh, I think is an issue of the organic intellectual mm. and it's kind of and it's very clear that Gramsci was important to kind of their understandings of their own place uh, in in re social change revolutionary change mm. and I suppose the drop off and the move away perhaps shows to them or some of them at least somebody like Wadah Sharara that they, they were never even that anyway you know as you said mm. the, the the creation of the Organization for Communist Action in Lebanon was a bargain of sorts to get uh, one side wanted something, one side wanted the other, and Socialist Lebanon wanted a platform, they wanted a mass to be able to engage with, which they didn't have otherwise. This, and I would think that Sharada would see that as, well, we never, we were never really the thing that we wanted to be or purported to be. But perhaps, again, somebody like Trabuzi, who never made mm -hmm. quite the same mm -hmm. moves that Sharada did, I mean, certainly mm -hmm. not would still see those things differently. So I, was, I think the issue of what place the intellectual has uh, is something that comes out of this uh, greatly. Um, and yeah, I suppose how you can see 
this this particular story and these biographies of these these Lebanese leftists as a prism to see the general move away from from a belief or a hope in this kind of revolutionary transformative politics, not just in Lebanon or the Middle East, but more generally across the globe. Mm -hmm. And this seems a, a very good archetypal case almost, uh, with all of its specificities and Lebanese specificities, certainly. But it, it, it seems to show very well this kind of, the, the feelings of hope and ultimate betrayal or failure, or however these things then get read, uh, which of course in Lebanon have the, the specificity of the, the civil war and, and, and what that ends up bringing about. Uh, and yeah, I thought I would uh, end there. Yeah, okay. All right. Thank you for so, Okay, so there's a whole series of issues. Would you like to comment on them now? Or you absolutely have the right to? Or would you prefer us to have, take some questions and then go back uh, to it? Can I just say a couple of things? Yeah. And then we'll like... Uh, yeah, thanks for That's very, very rich. I mean, so from the last question onwards, I mean... Mm. Uh, this project is definitely inscribed in um, national, regional, and interna international context. So it is a project about the collapse of the sort of Lebanese and Levantine left, but it's also inscribed in what happened in the area. And what happened in the area, I think, I mean, the sort of around that time, I mean, 1979 is a very, 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 very key date where and we li I think we live today in the sort of like aftermath of the transformations that happened in 1979-1978. I mean, the Iranian Revolution that actually showed that you can be a revolutionary with an in endogenous sort of political language, which is Islam. You don't need to go to Marx. And a lot of these new left Marxists at that point uh, sort of like either toyed with the idea or were at least interested
in the late 70s and by the problem of culture it's basically uh, what I mean is sort of like the rise of sort of sectarian ethnic and religious sort of identities and Khomeini is part of that but also like the fl- sort of the flaring up of Lebanese sectarianism in the uh, in the beginning of the war and and on and on afterwards is part of that and it's the dissolution really of of an old world where where you had you know, Baathists arguing against Arab nationalists, arguing against Syrian nationalists, again arguing against the Muslim Brotherhood, if you want, and argue, arguing against Fangists. So, distinctions which were which were sort of delineated according to ideological agendas. And what you what 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 happens and what continues to be happen that happens is that fracturing of that modernist ground that held all these ideologies together. And what we get is the sort of like religious secular. Sort of binary, which we which we have now. I mean, I can talk I can talk more about it. But anyway, that's that's part of the context. Um, I mean, organic intellectuals they were at the heart of that. That's why they were at Mao and Gramsci, and they were trying to get away from the vanguardism of Lenin. I mean, there is something which is. Uh, I mean, there are militant intellectuals, and they are working with the people. So that the the question of uh, where do you talk from? What position do you occupy? What's your relationship to folk knowledges? Uh, keep on cropping up. I mean, there are, these are similar questions that anthropologists face as well, uh, but they faced them from a different, very different perspective, which is basically they were not they were not seeking to represent these people in texts, but they were th- seeking to sort of like work with them as revolutionary subjects and agents. So uh, so the question is definitely was, was part of it. And uh, Trabulsi makes an appearance in this chapter precisely as the counterpoint <laughs> to Shara, and that's why I have this Merip interview with him in 1977, which is around the same time where Sharara was writing Wars of Subjugation, precisely to show how these uh, two figures that founded Socialist Lebanon together in 1964 come in the early two years of the Civil War to basically one of them to adopt the ideological language of phalangists as extreme right-wing racists, etc. And uh, we are working with the masses against these sort of racist right-wing front. And the move that Sharara does, which is basically a structuralist move, a move towards structure, he says, well, look, if you look at them, they may... They may seem they are different. I mean, of course, the, you know, he's saying like I'm not saying that the phalangists and you know the sort of the communists are the same, or the socialists or any other party. Politically, they are different. However, if you don't look at the political surface, but if you look at how is it that how are these sort of like how are the practices of power operating within these two groups, then you realize that they are similar. And he asks the question, how is it that not a single party managed to ideologically interpolate someone from the other party? I.e., why did the, f- I mean, why did the form of the war between left and right what take, I mean, take the form of Christian and Muslim? And he says, I mean, you know, he has this text that I didn't cite here where he says, look, if, if you are supposed to be the representative, we, the left, are supposed to be the representative of the masses, and uh, the Christians of Lebanon have been fighting with the representative of the masses for six months, that means they're masses as well. Like, what you see what I mean? So, that, so what, where, where do you draw the line? Because if you're putting forth, you're claiming that you are 
talking in the name of masses. But there you have the other half of the country, which is sort of fighting against you. And that's why I have this like nice pun, I think, from like foreign correspondents, which sort of like around that time, which sort of collated the ideological and the sectarian together. They called them the Christian conservatives and the Islamo progressives. I mean, that's how they solved it. You know, you put the ideological and the sectarian, and you sort of. I mean, and what, what I'm trying to. Why Sharara? That's the other question. Is because he was the main theorist of socialist Lebanon and uh, and the organization of communist action in Lebanon before he before he quit, and because he was the first one to quit and to sort of theorize why, yeah. uh, why he quit and how is it that sort of this logic of power works. And subsequently, a lot of them are gonna sort of like you know get disenchanted years after you know some of them after eighty two, some of them after seventy nine, and come to the to the realization that you see it's a question of content and form that the ideological content is sort of grounded in a sociological form, which is not congruent to it, which is gonna always win. That's his argument here. Like if you're claiming that you're anti-imperialist. But your anti-imperialism is not rising up, up, is not sort of re-articulating a new social bond, creating new subjects, but is rising upon, like let's say, a Muslim sectarian constitution. Then you're going to be epiphenomenal to this. I mean, that's that's the structure that's going to win at the end. Or if you're claiming that you are, you know, let's say uh, a Lebanese uh, nationalist, etc., but your, constitu your your constituency is like heavily on only Maronite in a sense, you can. As an intellectual, you can sort of like talk as much as you want, in a sense. But the balance of power, at the end of the day, is gonna lay, you know, is gonna basically rest with the people who have power inside these sociological configurations. And that's his first critique of the of the Palestinian resistance in 1970 in, in uh, Two Resistances Part Two, which he wrote, where he says, "Why is the Palestinian resistance instead of revolutionizing the masses working with these sort of like?" urban notables and like feudal lords, etc. That's, that's not what we need. We need a political practice that is not only content to sort of rely upon existing social structures and sort of utter anti-imperialist ideological context. We need new practices of power and new sort of uh, new practices, uh, a new, new sort of like practices of politics that match this form and this content. You know, and, and I, I stop here, but uh, yeah. it's, a, and it's just, you know, the idea that you have certain sects that are progressives, for example, by nature, and certain other sects that are reactionaries, or certain. So it's that idea of what. How does the locus of enunciation of sort of you know analysis or theory or politics, what what does it rest on sociologically, right? And how do you how do you work how do you work with these, how do you work with these two points? So I I'll stop here and drill. All right, right. Yeah, great. Thank you. So the floor is open for discussion questions and uh, commentary. You don't simply have to ask a question, you can also make a point, but you can also ask a question. And if you just say who you are uh, when you speak, that's nice. Hello, um, thank you. I'm Idris Jabari from University of Oxford, and um, I'm looking at pretty much the same thing, but from North Africa. Uh, and I was interested when you spoke about the trajectory of these individuals, and, and especially at the end of your paper, you talk about how they were disillusioned and therefore disengaged. Mm -hmm. And I want to look at it from what uh, Dubosc, when she looked at Egyptian intellectuals, contrasted the moment of engagement versus the moment of disengagement. Mm -hmm. And we know how easy it is for young uh, people in the 1950s, 60s to get into radical ideologies. Mm -hmm. But then <coughs> what kind of 
framework or, or what kind of uh, framing of these figures can we get when we contrast the reasons why they got into these politics and the reasons why they got out uh, and are they of, of equal weight? Right. Why don't you take that one? This is a question about uh, the reasons why um, intellectuals engage in forms of activism and then withdraw from forms of activism. And what can we learn from the comparison of coming in and going out? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how I can answer without repeating what I said. But I mean, that one way to think about it, actually, is that they became intellectuals after through the through political practice i mean of course they had some kind of you know leaning I and mean, i can tell you about you know how when they were in high school they were reading maurice Maupin-Ponty, you know and all and all this sort of uh, all this french stuff because we were colonized by the french so they were completely in touch with what was happening in the french cultural field through through their sort of like you know classical philosophy at the the the, the school and that sort of like opens up intellectual interests but then the intellectual habitus is the product of basically uh, being in the political party and being part of reading groups where you sit for hours and you say, okay, we're going to do like all that you said now and then we're going to do Fanon. And then, and so one way, I'm not sure if you're going to be satisfied by this answer, but one way, you, by one way this answer could be, uh, the question could be answered is that the political party I mean, to, if you want to use Bourdieu's sort of language, is basically where they got their cultural capital that then they could actually invest in other fields, I mean, afterwards. So a lot of them became uh, journalists, uh, novelists, uh, professors, that, you know, uh, there's a... For example, uh, Faustra Bussi, after he left in the mid-'80s, his militant uh, life came, went to Paris and continued his PhD at an, at an older age. So there's uh, this idea of when you stop being a militant intellectual or, the, or a revolutionary, you know, you go back and you, you resume your, your, your studies. So there's something here about that, that space where you develop an intellectual habitus and that intellectual habitus stays with you whether you become a university professor or a consultant to Hariri like uh, some of them did afterwards right so it's no but it's true I mean or the, the third option which is that you know you open an NGO for example which is again a sign of how is it but I'm not saying this you know cynically but it's literally because you have tools that you have sort of like gathered from from these years of political practice and and these tools could work in political consultancy and adv advocacy work, <coughs> in NGO works after the end of the you know after the end of sort of like political party life and as a university professor as an editorialist, etc. etc. So, uh, so what I'm trying to say is that you know you you come in as a fresh 16, 17 year old, someone like what Ashara had experienced in the bath, but then he went to Lyon, where he studied with Mehdi Amel was there, who was like six years older than them. So they knew each other, they were together at Lyon, they were studying. In Lyon, he joined the French Communist Party, so he was in a French Communist Party worker's cell, which is very different from what he, you know, what he was into in Beirut. And then he came back and founded Socialist Lebanon, and then the organi organization, and then he sort of, you know, he, he exited and became a university professor, and a journalist, and a public intellectual. So, uh, so there's... Yeah, I mean, I don't. You see what I'm trying to say? They're not equivalent. Like, you don't go it's in. It's a transformative like, process that happens. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to come back on that? Or.
Because just a, because Dubot's argument, I mean, people hold the same view, but they retreat from activism. Temporary. But here, somebody's changing his view. Mm. Isn't but they that change many things. Isn't I the mean, change like, of view from a cause to French Communist Party to Socialist mm. Lebanon to? But isn't Wadah Sharara's yeah. intellectual critique and transformation a cause of his withdrawal from engagement with those with those groups and parties, or is that or is the other way around? around? I mean, I would, I would, uh, I would stick to like a Marxist sort of like explanation by saying it's, uh, it's practice is primary. Mm. So like the disillusionment has to do with sort of like his experience with practice. However, the entry into politics has, of course, not to do with politics with practice. It's basically like sort of intellectual interest or mm -hmm. temps, You know, you live in the shadow of Nasser. You're like reading Merleau-Ponty at school. Uh, Sartre is writing, you know, uh, about like engaged literature. Your head is like really sort of like bouncing with ideas, you know. And Nasser is sort of like 56, you're 15 years old. Nasser is sort of, you know, nationalizing the Suez Canal. There's this speaking of emotions. I mean, that was the height of emotions for them. They were teenagers. I mean, they're following on the radio what's happening in Suez in 56 and like shivering. Like one of them told me, you know, that you know they uh, like they had like uh, their temperature rose or something like that. Like you know, somatizing the event, if you want. So, so that's that's something. But of course, you know, that's you can't. I mean, it's very hard to say. You know, is it the result of like reading a book? Because Charara in '73 read the Gulag Archipelago, which was published in France in '73, '74, and sort of like a lot of political theory at that time was sort of like took Solzhenitsyn and sort of uh, as as a base. And the uh, Nouveau Philosophe that came in its wake, you know, Finkelkraut, Gruxman, all of these people were also ex sort of 68ers Maoists that were arguing that. So he was also following that, right? So, but I mean, and he was also observing what's happening in the political party he had sort of participating in founding. So, he, you know, you're reading, you're experimenting politically, and, and it's a dialectical process. I can't tell you if it's like one, you know, one book or one p political party meeting. I think it's overdetermined in that, in that sense. But definitely practice has to do a lot a lot with it, particularly if you're like a member of a Politburo mm -hmm. at, at, uh, at that time. Unfortunately, I don't know the, I mean, I'm, I'm an anthropologist by training and uh, I don't know this basket, she a sociologist or he a sociologist of social movements. Mm -hmm. The person yes, yes, she looked at the Egyptian intelligentsia and, and how these people uh, that were really involved in the revolutionary rhetoric simply withdrew completely from, uh, from uh, the public sphere. And I guess uh, what she found out is that they didn't let go of these ideals, they didn't disengage completely, they just chose a, a more withdrawn position while the ideals were, I guess, found elsewhere. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's in the Biden and Berrell edited volume. It's okay. an article. And, uh, okay, so uh, uh, Reinhardt and then Ankhita. <coughs> uh, thank you, my name is Reinhardt Plinus from uh, King's College. Uh, just two brief questions. Uh, uh, thank you for your interesting talk. The first one is just out of curiosity. Um, what I what I get from you and what I the little I know about your subject is that the Lebanese left was uh, from the late 1960s and the 70s onwards always uh, obsessed with this question: how 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 do our our ideas resonate with a, you know, a significant uh, group of people? How do we mobilize people? How 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 can we frame? Our calls in ways that it will mobilize people. In that context, did, did you mentioned Khomeini, mm. but did, did, did the ideas of uh, Ali Shariati uh, uh, 
the were his ideas a source of inspiration, mm -hmm. or did, did it get, uh, gain any any uh, attention among the people you study? Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, on uh, which I find interesting that what, what, what basically the phenomenon of the, the retired uh, militant uh, and what happens then, uh, and you describe them as, uh, as as kind of floating individuals, but I, I wonder without wanting to put them in another box mm -hmm. uh, or lay, put a label on them. But didn't they just turn into social democrats? And and, and as such, that is interesting mm. to, to look at. Mm. Mm. All right, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, you're absolutely right about the question of uh, what you called resonance, because it's precisely that's the argument of this, of this, uh, of what the Palestinian resistance is going to do. Is basically it's going to transform it's going to like rig and transform the internal Lebanese political game which was sort of closed amongst these players and therefore mobilize more people because it's going to show how Lebanon is linked to the area not only economically but politically as well but I think that's you know that's a problematic which a lot of leftist parties share which is how do you how do you make your ideas your ideas resonate so you're yeah you're 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 you know you're right on that they were they were trying to do that, and of course they were trying to, uh, and they failed them, but they were trying to break the sort of sectarian polarization of politics. And that's what they thought the sort of Palestinian resistance is going to do. Uh, that's why there's this section here, where, which I quoted in the beginning, where, they, where the author of Two Resistances is very happy that they were cursing traditional leaders, such as the Mufti and Yafi, which is the old prime minister, etc., etc., uh, in the early 70s and that period that I was working in at least with Socialist Lebanon and uh, the Organization of Communist Action Shariati did not really uh, appear in, but I'm sure he was influential for uh, people maybe after 79, 78 when they started considering what I thought of in terms of uh, the, the move towards basically a revolutionary kind of Islam, I, I, in in that period of of the revolution, uh, there is uh, there is some work on the Maoists of Fatah and how they were sort of like interpolated by the by the Iranian revolution that has been done by a by a French scholar who led Atif uh, Pope in Beirut. Now, and uh, and if I'm not mistaken, Shariati is so someone they sort of like grappled with around that time after after the revolution, but uh, but not these guys, not these guys who were so who were solid Marxists. Even though, uh, and we, I, me and John have talked about this. I mean, they had a very very peculiar idea of. Marxism as a tradition that is predicated upon practices of translation. I.e., they were very much aware that they're not doing a cut and paste of sort of like Marxist concepts, but rather these Marxist concepts have to be reappropriated and retranslated in order to basically be able to work with the sort of shifting time and sort of spatial conjunctures they were working in. So whether you're working in Beirut or you're working. Uh, in uh, you know, or you're working in a 
particular, let's say, Palestinian camp, etc. So, but Shoyati, I think, for particular people who were Maoists and Maoists, I think, comes comes afterwards. Or for some of these people, in the wake of the Iranian Revolution, I think they they sort of like they get into they get into it. Uh, what was the third question after Shariati? No, there was something else. There was the residents and Shariati. Oh, social democrats. Well, yes, why not? But I mean, social democrats without a constituency, no, without a party, or without like without. Maybe not in an organized manner as in the parties they were used to, but maybe the current. Yes, but they, but they but they uh, but they don't constitute the political force, and that's their tragedy. That's what they think of. Like there there's out of them like one and one and one and one. You know, like isolated. Like you can't take them. You can say this intellectual, this intellectual, this intellectual. But uh, I mean, do they constitute a political force that, for example, can elect someone into the parliament or could like pressure for certain things? I mean, now. It's even now it's different, but you're thinking about the 70s and the 80s when you know you have you're in the middle of a civil war, you're moving out. I tell you one thing that happened to them, uh, which is I think essential, which is they rediscovered uh, Lebanon. You know, in this piece, they're very critical about Lebanese culture, about Lebanon. They call it the farmhouse of imperialism, the sort of like the link of like exploited, and that's that's what they sort of go back on. They're like, oh no, we didn't know what we had. So there, there is a rediscovery of, if you want, a certain kind of uh, republicanism, like a republican sort of like th thinking about, you know, what does it mean? Of course, which also doesn't have any sort of like political yield, like the, like the, like their liberalism or their social, you know, the, them being social, social democrats. I mean, apart from the writing. But in terms of uh, this being these writings being articulated with a political project on the ground or political agents that would sort of like push forth that agenda against, let's say, an Islamist agenda or a sort of Christian sectarian agenda, or which is not the same thing, you know, another sort of like sectarian Muslim agenda. That I think is where they sort of. Uh, they considered that there was not much opening that took place. I don't know, I mean, do you disagree? Do you no, not really. But, uh, I, I, I didn't have an answer to that question myself. Yeah. That's why I raised it. I mean, uh, okay, well, let, let's show you. Can we I just say one sentence? Yeah. I think that th th their failure politically produced one of the most interesting generations of, of intellectuals, of public intellectuals. So it's, a, it's the fear that, because what their transformation is from militant intellectuals, from revolutionaries, into public intellectuals. And I think uh, the times they lived in, which are the, you know, that sort of like the height of anti-colonial moment, being born in 1940, experiencing, you know, May 68, experiencing the sort of all the sort of events revolving around, you know, the Arab area <coughs> and Vietnam. Which were the, they were completely in conversation with whether the Vietnamese model could be applied in the Arab world or not. Speaking of you know forms of struggle, uh, and also uh, being such sort of theory heads because they were obsessed with sort of like Lenin's sort of maxim that without revolutionary theory you can't have revolutionary practice. So they would read and read and read. 
so they exited, but they had this bagage with them after they exited, and they had this experience as well. So, so it's a failure, it's a political failure, but I think there's a very interesting generation that may, you know, that is not necessarily going to be inherited by other generations. If you think of the definition of a generation in the typical sense of people who experience particular sort of like transformative events, yeah. and uh, yeah, what's right. his name? Definition. Some more questions. This one here. Critiques. Thank you, Professor, for your lecture and your paper. Um, I you just mentioned um, that there were some Lebanese communists developed under the Soviet orbit. Mm -hmm. And then you were also talking about translation, about how they were translating the French Marxist politics. Mm -hmm. Obviously, these are very, very different branches of Absolutely. Marxism. And I wanted to know if this is a change, if this is a, if this is a, if this is a timeline change, a change across time, or whether uh, these, whether these form of ideologies, whether they led to any form of clashes amongst these intellectuals. I have very limited idea of yeah. independence. It's just a I mean, you're absolutely right. The Lebanese Communist Party is very, very old. It was founded in 1924. So uh, they founded Socialist Lebanon in 1964, 1965. So that's like 40 years after the founding of the Lebanese Communist Party. That was founded because we were uh, under French mandate then. So basically, it was a zero Lebanese Communist Party in the, in the, in the sort of in the beginning. But uh, so there is definitely a shift, and there it's a different generation of, uh, and it's also you write it's a very different theoretical imaginary. You know, they never like you know read Stalin and took him seriously, uh, and they were they sort of like they were completely part of, and they a lot of them studied in France. A couple of them maybe went to England, uh, like Fawaz Trabulsi, he studied here, but most of them studied in, in, in France, in Lyon, or in Paris. So they were taught by uh, people like Deleuze, Ricoeur, that generation of basically, they, they, these were their people that they did their sort of like thesis under, for example. Uh, uh, Wabasha remembers when Foucault came and gave them like a guest lecture in the early 60s prior to the you know publication of the Order of Things. I mean, this is the sort of intellectual world they were inhabiting. So people like Althusser were very important for them and that whole that whole movement. So you're right, they belong to very different theoretical universes. And they were also following uh, what was happening in Italian Marxism very, very closely as well. So as opposed to, you know, the Lebanese Communist Party that was uh, revolving in that sort of Soviet orbit where, you know, you go to Moscow, you take the actives from there, you read what Moscow puts out. And, but not all of them, of course, because I mean, the later generation, such as Mehdi Amil, which is the acronym of uh, Hassan Hamdan, who was the sort of like the main theorist of the Lebanese Communist Party, who was assassinated in '87, studied in France and was also a very heavy Althusserian and tried to sort of like work, you know, work sort of like this sort of Althusserian theory with the political positions of the Lebanese Communist Party. Hmm. So, uh, but that's that that's sort of like you know. That that came that came afterwards. Yeah, I mean, and they 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 had like a theoretical contempt of the Lebanese communists. I mean, they had this sort of like cultural superiority. Like we know Marx, we read Marx. We don't need to read like Soviet scientists explaining to us what Marx is all about. Like we go directly to the source, right? So it's as this like rhetorical source which undercuts Soviet authority. And uh, yeah, that was part that was part of uh, their claim to fame, if you want. Their distinction. And the 
question here and then but no this gentleman is before you actually <coughs> no, no let's go let's take it in order yeah. right you oh right. so no it's you <laughs> first okay. <laughs> um, okay so my question is about um, actually the, the failure of, of the new uh, experience which is the democratic left which did afterwards so we were saying that many of the leftists in the 70s um, just left communist party or other organization and they were left uh, like outside of any form of political organization and then there's the thing that happens prior to 2005, which is which groups some of these leftist intellectuals and also another generation much younger within this framework of the democratic left. And also there's a kind of intellectual uh, rethinking of the left with um, people like Ziad Mashik contributing to it or others, and which redefines maybe the left in the post post war context of the left. So I was wondering. Um, like how to explain this constant failure, even this new experience has failed in a short period of time. Uh, are there like endemic symptoms <laughs> to the Lebanese labs? Uh, how come that these intellectuals who did a previous experience and went out of it, when they retried a new experience, they also failed? Uh, is it the same, uh, are there the same reason? Can you really draw the parallel between the period you're talking about and this new experience after the war? It's a huge question. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't, I mean, I can't jump from 77 to 2007 in one go. I mean, it's a very, very different con conjuncture, but I mean, if you want to think about, I mean, one, one way that you can think about maybe similarities is uh, regarding the marginality of the left is precisely in that idea of whether the left basically manages to have a strong popular political constituency that backs it or contents itself to play the role of the theorist intellectual for uh, political constituencies which uh, rise above uh, uh, on the basis of very different kinds of loyalties, such as regional, familial, sectarian loyalties. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So if you are thinking of a small leftist uh, group in 2005, which is the democratic left, uh, what kind of influence could it have vis-a-vis -vis the much stronger ally it was allied, allied with, such as the future movement, which does not rise upon the same kind of basis. I mean, they may, you see what I'm saying. So that's, 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 I mean, I wouldn't call it endemic, but it's that idea of precisely how do you articulate uh, new political subjectivities, if you want, that are congruent to the ideological program that you are carrying, as opposed to uh, having an ideological program that is carried by constituencies which are ac articulated according to their own structures of power, whether they're sectarian or Islamists, and they're not the same, for, yeah, for that's example. Exactly, that's yeah. exactly my question, like, this pattern, like, why the left is always trapped in the polarization? This was the case 
in, this, in 75 actually because it turned into a Muslim Christian divide. It was the case also in 2005 because they were totally hijacked and trapped and put out of the picture in the March 14 March 18 divide. And also I see this pattern at the Arab level in some countries where also the democratic left is totally it, it's totally trapped in, in the polarization and can't emerge. So I was just wondering yeah. if there are some structural reasons for that or it's bad choices of, of, of actors, political actors, or, or it's just simply too difficult for them to emerge. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, please answer if you like. I mean, I really, I mean, I can't give you like a full normative sort of like, answer, like my theory on the failure because I think the conjunctures are very different. In the in in seventy five, they entered fully believing that they were uh, working according to an ideological agenda, and w m many more people were mobilized according to that idea. And it sort of, even though it sort of like became clear that the body of the fighters on both camps was on the one camp mostly Christian and the other camp mostly Muslim. Where in 2005, I don't think that was even, like the idea that people were mobilized according to that uh, sort of uh, ideological agenda wa was there because, it, uh, I mean, and th it's really very difficult really for me to, to answer this question without, you know, seeming to be I mean, it's going to be ahistorical and it's going to be very determinist. I, I can just say that there's sort of like, you know, there's national, regional, and international configurations that shift that are not, uh, that sort of, you know, now, I mean, in 2005 and now that are not sort of like the same as the ones in the 70s. And also the fact that the left, why didn't the left manage to produce its own autonomous political constituency, which is that, that is the main question. I really don't know. I mean, I, I can't, like, answer it. I mean, I can tell you, you know, I mean, some people said that they were elitists, that they were, like, you know, modernizing, modern, sort of, like, plagued by modernization theory, that they did. I'm not sure that's the that's the case always that they were sort of and that they were irrespectful of you know the religious beliefs of of the the sort of their constituencies. Thanks. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Well, if, if I, let's if open. I may, just, just just to rephrase that question, maybe in a way that you can answer it. Sure. I, I think it touches on on your entire project. Go ahead. Um, to put it a bit provocatively, why yeah, bother? Yeah looking at all these intellectuals and activists about what they thought, how they organized, mm -hmm. and whatever. But why don't you take Sharada's uh, analysis and, and look at the structure of power mm -hmm. underlying all this? So, yeah. and, I mean, I'm, I'm a, th it's not a rhetorical question, by the way, but the, the answer to that question would, would, would underscore the, the very purpose of your study, most clear I I would say. You mean okay, like that? So, listen, that's a very big question. I want to come back to it, but there's other people in the queue because right. I, I think that's a very big question, right? Why yeah, yeah. don't you accept, or do you accept Wadashara's analysis or follow his methodology? But can I, I think, uh, you know, can we, do you mind if we come back to that? In sure, sure. I want to answer this, but. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, <coughs> but there's this gentleman here and then yourself. Yes, you spoke about um, Sharara's exit mm -hmm. in the 70s, mm -hmm. later on. 
of for was Trabusi. But they, what did they create? They had create Mozambican Amal Shia like, mm. uh, organization of communist action remained a, a force in Lebanon for some time to come. So who carried on the mantle uh, later on, especially after the invasion of of 1982, mm -hmm. when the uh, when for a few years there was a new momentum created around mm -hmm. not just Mozambique uh, uh, Amal, but the, the actual Communist Party and the Syrian Nationalist mm -hmm. Party mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So who were the people who continued? Mm -hmm. And there was a new lease of life, if you like, <coughs> for for the, for the uh, this. I mean, Fawaz Tabusi was still part of it. Hmm? Fawaz Tabusi was still part of it until the oh, okay. the, the, the mid late mid yeah, mid eighties. So like that, that lease of life that you're talking about after the invasion, you know. he was still part of it. And no, I, I, I know, but uh, of course that was snuffed out in the end uh, by both the Syrians and the Iranians when uh, the, uh, the um, agreement or the Taif yeah. agreement, where Hezbollah became mm -hmm. the, the only and they, yeah. uh, they monopolized the whole. Uh, Business of, of um, the Muqawabi or the resistance. But that's one, one question, perhaps. The other question is I used to uh, uh, know for West Rabusi in London in the late 60s. And um, we worked together on um, getting, mobilizing opinion here and uh, uh, supported the Palestinian resistance at the time. But I used to, uh, and we, we fought together, we tried to. Uh, draw on the support, on support from the anti-Vietnam world movement in this country among the students and so forth. But I remember at the time he was very, very comfortable working mostly with uh, organization like the International Socialists and the International Masters Group, which are known to be Trotsky's. Mm -hmm. Would you then define uh, that, uh, that school uh, of activists as, as Trotsky's, or, or am I reading too much into that? No, thank you for your... Uh I should interview maybe <laughs> you for, for for the book. I should be asking you questions. Uh, they were definitely uh, uh, friendly to Trotsky, but they were they were I mean they were theoretically eclectic, apart from the fact of being non-Soviet. So they definitely read Trotsky uh, seriously, but also you know read uh, read Althusser as well. So. Uh, so I would not go as far as say that they were, you know, uh, only Trotskyites, but they were, uh, they were, I think, sympathetic to uh, to, to Trotsky, and that's probably based they on. They were always at odds with the Maoists, by the way. I remember. They were as what? At odds with the Maoists. Yeah. Who also, you know, came on board at the time. You know, but there's, I mean, but you're putting your finger on is also something which is very interesting because they were. Uh, so you know, what Dashler is studying in Lyon, Fawaz is studying here with you. They were also sort of like personal theoretical preferences. You know, the Francophones amongst them were much more uh, attracted to Althusser and French structuralism than people like Fawaz who were sort of schooled here and attracted to British Marxism as well. So these things were not sort of ironed out by, by socialist Lebanon in the sense that they used to, you know, they wanted one sort of... I mean, there was this sort of like grand Marxist-Leninist umbrella under which you could put some Mao, some Guevara, some Regis Debré, revolution in the revolution, uh, some Trotsky that they also... Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Fawaz translated Trotsky into Arabic, or translated something about Trotsky by Deutscher into Arabic, uh, under, with, a, with, a, with a pseudonym. I mean, I have to go back to, to my notes. But 
yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense that you, you mentioned that in the 60s he was comfortable with them. What about the, other, the earlier thing about um, the... Um, the, the uh, Ibrahim was the secretary, and he still is the secretary general uh, until now. I mean, the organization now formally still exists with a very, very little uh, number of adherents. It's Mohsen Ibrahim who was... Uh, a the head of the organization of Lebanese socialists who were the outcome of the Marxist radicalization of the Arab nationalist movement after 67. So he was the Lebanese counterpart of Habash, if you want, for the, for the, for the PFLP after the Arab nationalist movement um, disengaged from its sort of uh, alliance with Nasser after the defeat. So it's him who was the sort of uh, the secretary general. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so next question over here. Hi, my name is Amal, and I'm doing a PhD at King's College. And my question is related to what this gentleman was saying about 2005, so if it's irrelevant, just ignore it. But I was wondering, because you've studied the left in Lebanon, to what extent do you think the assassination of Samir Asir impacted whether or not there was a window for the left to rise? Or am I putting too much emphasis on Samir Asir and his influence in the left? I mean, again, look, I would be very happy to answer these questions, even though these are uh, not periods that I've uh, written or uh, or sort of uh, worked on. So uh, I would be happy to, you know, to give you uh, an opinion, but not something which is based on archives. But I mean, what do you mean by rise? Well, I think that there was a, a momentum or a movement of the left, something other than the future and like the, the, the existing political parties in around 2004 that was organized by, I think, Samir Asir and Ziad Majid. And when Samir Asir was killed, I think that that took a severe blow. But you, you saw that thing as like a popular movement or basically as we were talking earlier, like as basically... Uh, How do you uh, measure popular? I mean... I mean, I think that they were one of the main they were a major momentum in the Intifada of Independence before it became known as the Cedar Revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm sure they, they sort of, they, they, they played a role, but really, I mean, I don't think I can answer like a hypothetical question which is based on, I mean, on the assassination of, uh, you know, a very, very talented sort of public intellectual and, and historian who played a role in, in the in the Antifada of 2005, but I mean, how can I answer a question which is you know, which is predicated on his essay? I think it's it's very difficult to answer this question. All right, and we have a few more. There's one here. Thank you for your talk. Uh, I've got two questions for you. The first one is, uh, do you get a sense from your interviews how the grassroots experienced the demise of the left left movement at the time you're writing about? And my second question is, what do you mean by public intellectual? Uh, because you said there was a mutation from the militant uh, form into mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, does that mean that politics is depoliticized to some extent? All right. Uh, first question, uh, la last question for it. So it's a very different, uh, I think, mode of engagement with politics. So for example when they were militant intellectuals most of what they wrote 
uh, they wrote anonymously or using pen names. So uh, two resistances was not signed. I knew 40 years later when I interviewed a bunch of them that it was what Dahshanara that wrote it. But when I looked through the archive, there was not a signature. Why? Uh, for many reasons. One of them is that they subscribe to this ethos of collective authorship. Even though most of the times it was basically one person who authored the piece, but it basically was put in the name of Socialist Lebanon. Uh, more practical reasons, a lot of them were school teachers in Lebanon, and that would have put them into trouble as state functionaries to be sort of like engaging in revolutionary activities. That's why they had pen names or they wrote anonymously as well. Not only were the pieces written anonymously, but also sometimes their circulation was anonymous. I.e., they, they were written in underground revolutionary bulletins that were not that you couldn't buy at like a library or a bookstore or like a, in the in the, in the store. So they were circulated. They were, if some of you are interested in the materiality of intellectual uh, production, they were mimeographs on like sort of like chronotypes. They had like one Ronio, which was the most important possession they had that sort of they kept on sort of moving and hiding because that's precisely how they could, that was their mass medium, basically. So, uh, and it was difficult to acquire one of them. So I think it was one of these Ronios that would become like a, like a suitcase when you sort of close it. And uh, so that's, so, so they were Ronio type, that's pre-Xerox machines. Uh, a public intellectual is different. First of all, you write under your own name. Second of all, you are not formulating uh, a revolutionary theory by that you are addressing to a revolutionary constituency and to your political party, but you are, you are intervening in a public debate in an op-ed in a public newspaper under your own name. So it's a very different modality of engagement. You're writing from a very different position, one which is open, one which is not particularly... Uh, targeted towards uh, the act of, to use market, mark, Marxist speech, raising consciousness, right, or agit uh, prop, you know. So it's a very, very different kind, I think, of, uh, of engagement. It's not militant. And it's also not, uh, it not tied to an organization. You're not speaking in the name of a party. You're just speaking in your own name and giving, giving your... Your opinion. What was the first question? Uh, how the how the grassroots experienced the demise of this? You get a sense that they they, they knew how their grassroots followers were experiencing the collapse of this movement. Yes, that's a that's a that's a very 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 interesting question. That I think there is an area of answers to uh, uh, to the people that that you're sort of designating as the grassroots. I mean. You know, I would assume, and I've you know, I've read that, I've heard that, you know, some of the people are, of course, sometimes uh, disillusioned with intellectuals that change their minds ideologically and politically, and move on from one position to another. Either, you know, even within the same tradition, such as you move from being like a Leninist to a Maoist to a Gramsciist, or from a tradition to another one, say from Marxism into like a liberal or a socio-democrat. There is sometimes a sense of uh, disillusionment of you know of why did he convince us of all these things if like you know a couple of years later he changed his mind for example. But people also who were uh, the rank five militants also sometimes changed their minds as well. So they also move out of Marxism into uh, different idioms sometimes. 
Islamist politics could be one, uh, sectarian politics could be other, or uh, or go home, or go home. I mean, as the the disengagement of question about disengagement, there's people who just go home and remain silent and don't speak about it. I mean, there's some French scholars who did work on uh, on the 68ers, the Mais 68 and and they said that you know some. Some people just were very, very active, but then they withdrew completely from the limelight. And you don't know that they were part of that. They just go back to becoming private citizens, not necessarily, I mean, dealing, you know, not, not necessarily being <coughs> vocal about that moment in their lives and how they related to their present. How do they articulate that present to them? Maybe they do, but they don't, you know, they, they don't write about it. So there's different ways, I think. I mean, and that 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 should warrant, you know, the work I did was mostly with uh, was basically these militant intellectuals that were the sort of uh, mostly the theorists of of these uh, of these groups. I did some much less work with people who were uh, who were militants, but I think it's a very very interesting question, and I think it's uh, there's a wide area of co of answers. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm working on Iranian politics and uh, actually what uh, you said about the Lebanon at that time found many similarities with the leftists in Iran during that time as well, especially the generation that you mentioned and the floating individual. But uh, I have two questions. One is that uh, during the that time period, during the 60, 60, 60s and early 70s, there was like this uh, Muslim left-leaning party in Iran, not a militia group, Mujahideen al Khal. That uh, when were they founded? 1965. Mm. And Around the same time as socialism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That they tried to, you know, integrate the Islam and Marxists, but they were more left-leaning. And also there was this Maoist called Fadayan al Khal, mm. which was a little bit later, like three, four years later. And I was wondering if. Uh, there were any connection between these two movements in the Iran and in the Lebanon at that time, right. that period. And also the second question is, the scale of influence of these uh, intellectuals that you mentioned that become public intellectuals, during the time that they were like revolutionary intellectuals, extent of their influence back then, how, how much was <coughs> it, you know, because it was the case in Iran that someone Iranian case become very famous, very uh, influential after he become public intellectuals and the scale of his influence back then was not that extensive. So after the exit they become influential? Yes. But uh, within which circles? Uh, within the public intellectuals and they yeah. even talking about the history of the yeah. leftist movement, not yeah. necessarily for the, you know, yeah. Like you have, some, you have someone in mind. Uh, I, I have someone in mind from the Islamic point of view, not from the okay. leftist point of view. For example, we have even some famous like Mesbah Yazdi, yeah. who is a terrorizing of the rightists very yeah. much. He's now become very famous, yeah. even though he was uh, terrorizing the like Islamic movement before the revolution yeah. and signed the Entaqam Bulletin and something like that. Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, the, the comparison with Iran is something that I really want to think, uh, you know, more more about. I mean, the, as I answered, like the first question, I, these these Marxists, I don't think were 
uh, part of the same universe as like Mujahideen Khag and Fidayeen Khag. However, uh, you probably know this, but you know in the 70s, I can't remember the exact date, but not with not with these Marxists, but people like Mustafa Shamran, for example, yes. were in South Lebanon, yeah. uh, who later become became Minister of Defense in the uh, Islamic Iranian Republic. And uh, so there were, uh, but this was, I think, a different network, pro most probably, and here I need to do like, more work on it, through uh, the Palestinian resistance and through the Amal movement. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but and it's also a different time. It's not 60s, and it's not yep. early. It's not early 70s as well. So, uh, one way to really, I mean, I think, uh, think of the conjuncture of these uh, people is locally vis-à-vis -vis the Lebanese left, which is the LCP and uh, the socialist parties and the Ba'ath, etc. Uh, regionally, in uh, articulating the position vis-a-vis -vis the anti-colonial regimes in power in Syria and Egypt, particularly 67 and its aftermath, and internationally being very much in touch with what's happening in China, Cuba, and Vietnam. This is, this is their constellation, basically. Uh, Vietnam for resistance, China because it was the moment of cultural revolution that sort of like through France came to Beirut, and, and Cuba because of the revolution that happened. So these are the sort of post, you know, post-Bolshevik kind of like uh, uh, revolutions that, that this is the sort of like, this is the air they were breathing, I think. Uh, I did not come across any references to Mujahideen uh, Khalq or Fidayeen Khalq. I mean, and there would have been a, la a linguistic barrier, I think, to be very honest, because uh, what they were writing was always, if it was not in Arabic, was mediated by the foreign languages they had access to, which were mostly French and English. And that's why Marx was read either in French or in English, in the same way as Lenin was read in French or English, because they did not trust the, uh, the Soviet translations that were published in Arabic by uh, progress uh, books, Dar Taqaddum, Moscow, that were sort of like shipped to the Arab world. So they read, they read in French and English. So whatever was available in French and English, and I can give you names. I don't know if anyone of you knows uh, Francois Maspero, who's had a bookstore in France and had the publishing book that in 82 he sold to Francois Jazz that became Edition La Découverte, which is still happening. But Maspero is the uh, person who published Fanon, Debré, Guevara, Giap, all of this sort of like, they were part of this third worldist new left, in a sense, and which was mediated through the metropoles, which made the sense. And these later networks, which were, you know, sort of uh, based on, you know, in that case, like a Shia sort of trans, Shia Palestinian uh, and transnational network is, is a very different kind of network of ideas and, and people, I think. Even though, of course, someone like Shariati was very much influenced by Sam Farron, as was in Paris, and was read, I think, Afterwards, but I mean, there's no, uh, there's no trace. I mean, there's a, a lot of traces to Tom Modern, to, uh, to Italian Marxism, to what's happening, uh, to what's happening in Cuba, and but not, not. I haven't come across, I haven't come across Iran. But I think the linguistic barrier would be would be part of it. Uh, in terms of influence, I think. Uh, I think you're right. They were hugely influential within their limited circles of the parties because it was covert action. So, but then when they became public intellectuals, they, beca they become more influential, but very in a very different kind of influence.
It's not, a, it's not the influence of the theorist who's telling you this is the position we should adopt now, this is the party we should ally ourselves with, but it's the position of the intellectual who's saying that's how, you know, this is unacceptable, we have to take a stance on this sort of like issue. Like a <laughs> so it's a different kind of, of influence. But definitely the audience is bigger because it's no longer the political party's audience as well. Right, so uh, Riley, do you want to repose that question? You know, why, why study these intellectuals? Why not do what, what Asherar has said, study the dynamics of subjugation? Yeah, okay, can, you, can you repose it? I think, I mean, I want this mm. provocation. Okay. Since, you, since you sort of... Yeah. Since you, you well, I, I, I thought this, 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 the answer to this question would, would basically underscore the whole rationale of your, your project. No, you're absolutely right. But why, why bother looking at uh, intellectuals, activists who, you know, uh, had their ideas resonated in only a very brief period of time? Uh, they changed their minds, uh, became floating individuals. But why not take Shalada's uh, advice or analysis and, and, and look at uh, the structures of power mm. rather than what they tried to do with Unsuccessful. No, you're absolutely right. I think you're, they're they're not either or questions, but you're, uh, and I I mean I take your uh, I take your question to heart because I mean, if I understood you correctly, it's like a, you're just asking, you know, what I mean, what is the norm, what is the sort of implicit sort of like history of the present that I'm writing in a way, like why now unearth this whole tradition, right? Yeah, that's part of it. I guess more fundamentally. More fundamentally, if they're epiphenomenal, why not go and like study the sort of like the deep structures of power and bother with these ideas that didn't have an effect? Is this? Yeah, or, or at least to make a part of your project of what what they affected in terms of bringing about change. For example, you you mentioned that they anticipated the civil war, but absolutely, but not on sectarian grounds. Of course, again, based on very little insight knowledge on this issue, but. Uh, the, Anticipated civil war, maybe they helped causing it by oh, of making that connection. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I guess some want to have a bit of an answer in that direction, not in terms of blaming necessarily, but why why study these? I tell you, their ideas? I tell you why study them. I mean, why study them because of precisely of the question that uh, I'm sorry I didn't get your name. What, what, what John asked, because basically there is this, because studying their failure is, I think, studying the unraveling of a certain mode of political practice which is based on modernist ideologies, such as, such as the left. And, and the question that John asked in 2005 is precisely, you know, why is it that this sort of like, why is it that we can't, have this this kind of political practice? Why is it that this sort of like political practice, as if it's doomed to fail generation after generation? And I'm very much interested in that moment of the beginning of the civil war, because what you have is that you have someone who is in the late 20s, in the 60s, thinking that that's it. This is our historical chance. Nasser had failed, and it's our turn now to sort of like move the Arab world into sort of like a, a socialist, on a, on, a, on a socialist, if you want, liberation track. And then five years, four years later, what transpires to him on the ground is basically sectarian massacres. 
like you know Christians killing Muslims, Muslims killing Christians, the Moor massacre, Quarantina massacre, all of these things happened in the first two years of the war. And he sort of withdraws from it and tries to think, you know, what is it that, how is it that we thought about things? I mean, because what he's doing is an implicit autocritique, of course. And when you say that they helped uh, cause it, I mean, they at least, you know, they, they theorized, I mean, differently, but they theorized the idea of how Lebanese politics could be radically transformed by the alliance with the Palestinian resistance, i.e. making the Palestinian resistance a local player in Lebanese politics, which was, of course, one of the sort of main conditions of making the sort of that conflict in 75, you know, that take the form it took bet between the sort of like two different parties i.e. you had like, you had both sort of like, you know, national, uh, you know, you had sort of like national divergences that were articulated upon a, a regional player that came and became a local player, which is a sort of like the Palestinian resistance that made that. So why bother, I think, is precisely to, to get a sense of, uh, of generational memory. I mean, I think these words are not read, are not commented on. And there is, uh, that's, a, that's a personal opinion, that there is, uh, there is a, a, some kind of a, a lack of, uh, if you want, um, sort of like a memorial con continuity between generations of activists. And I think if you, at least I modestly reconstitute the experiences and trajectories of a generation of militants slash intellectuals, and what they faced and how their political project really like was unraveled i think it sort of like could help sort of people who are trying to work today politically to get a sense even though i don't think that i think that a lot of what Sharad said was valid was is valid now but i think there's also very different things such as islamist political movements that should be theorized differently than according to this model i mean some of the things apply some of the things of subjugation and fusion apply to, to I mean, the question of asabiya, but there's also something else happening on the level of ideology, and the, on the level of like a, you know, a sort of like a competing universal Islamic universalism that's trying to sort of like take over. So what I'm trying to say is that sectarianism and Islamism are not the same. I mean, you could be very well like a Christian sectarian, let's say, uh, Lebanese citizen, and not care about religion. Your sectarianism is not wedded to a theological point, or to an, or, or even to like you know a practicing religion. But I mean, it's different. That's different than being, let's say, someone who is mobilized by a thicker Islamist agenda, which is not the same as sectarianism. So I think there's finer distinctions now between Islamism, sectarianism, reg regional identities that that need to be worked through. But I mean, I'm not sure if I can, if I'm answering this in a satisfactory way, manner. But there's the dimension of memory. There's the dimension of looking at that unraveling that keeps on repeating itself. Like because since that time, I mean, you know, as Jean was saying, and basically uh, the lady in the back was saying as well, there's this idea of a constant failure of politics that's trying to rise on very different grounds than these sort of like familiar regional or sectarian or you know now Islamist grounds and. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a sort of like a modest contribution, but I, I really cannot answer, like, 
why is it the left always fails? I mean, it's a, because it's historical in a way, and it sort of puts me in this sort of like supra, supra historical position where I can, I have like a, like a God's eye view over like, you know, the sort of failure in 75 and in 2005, which, and they're very different worlds, 75 and 2005, even though there are certain commonalities, which is the fact that there was not, that fashioning of these sort of like political subjectivities that are, detached from these loyalties did not happen, which makes them always be subjugated by stronger forces, such as, uh, you know, uh, the future movement that they were allied to or any other uh, movement that, that makes them sort of like minor partners in a way, in a, yeah. Can I just add something briefly? Yes. <coughs> I mean, the point is these characters themselves are doing this continuous auto-critique anyway. We've read the worst of this more recent stuff, is constantly thinking back uh, about you know, the failures and, and what can still rise, so his, his kind of positioning now on, on the Syrian revolution has everything to do, I think, at least. Is he still writing? I mean, he's still going to write weekly for Safir, he teaches at AUB and LAU, I think, at the same time. But never, you know, he's still very much vocal about these things. He's somebody who hasn't made the same moves as what Dasharara did, or Ahmad well, differently. But, you know, he is doing this job anyway, so... Yeah, perhaps not your position to do that because the people you're writing about yeah. are doing it anyway continuously. No, but it's my position to do it from a very different generation of perspective. I mm. think. I to mean, bring that, it I mean, their because part of part of this work, which doesn't sort of like come in this, in this, uh, in this piece, uh, is like an intergenerational conversation, basically. Mm -hmm. Because it is an intergenerational conversation about, all right. So, what did you do? Where did you go? What, what, you know, what's happening, and trying to trying to get this older generation to remember and to store, if you want, and to sort of like uh, think about and interpret their their perspective in order to have at least, you know, an, uh, an arc of a, of a narrative of, I think, a very, very interesting slice of time in the world, but at least in, in, in Lebanon as well, where, to go back to like uh, Fouad's first comment, which was hopeful, I mean, there was literally like uh, a past, present, future that sort of lined up with, for these people. Like there was a moment where they could like envisage sort of like futures where of emancipation, and the generations that ca came afterwards cannot do that. At least those who are sort of like schooled and sort of like or are sympathetic to these sort of like traditions of the land. <coughs> at least in, in Lebanon and not in that same way. And it's very interesting that the two questions that came, you know, about the sort of like the moment afterwards sort of focused on, on that moment of 2005, which is another moment of sort of like of polarization within the country, but also a moment of hope as well for, for, for a basically for a, particular, uh, for a particular sort of generation. Mm. And also another moment where the political got articulated this time not on a Christian Muslim split, but on a Sunni Shia split. Which makes like a repetition with a difference. Which is an exacerbation of these sort of like of the of these sort of splits where where I mean they're becoming more and more I mean articulated differently, I think. Anyway. So um, we don't want to say anything, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> You're being put on the spot. 
no fascinating talk, really. Um, uh, I mean, what the, the question of why the Arab left is failing, I mean, is a big question. I know. Also, but it's also quite an important question yeah. and, and, and quite relevant uh, and, and I think legitimate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no, well, I, I wanted to ask how they related to the wider uh, regional kind of uh, actors, I mean, apart from the Palestinians. Um, uh, the Syrian regime, uh, or the Ba'ath Party in general, and like and the reactionary uh, regimes and monarchies of the Gulf or Jordan, and so on. I mean, how did they position themselves also going forward throughout the civil war? Yeah, no, I mean they they were I mean, in, the, in that in that period uh, when they founded, the, they were critical of basically of these regimes, and. Uh, they were critical of the, so the army regimes, like the Ba'ath and, uh, and Nasser's, Nasser's regimes. And of course, you know, the, the regimes, and I mean, there's no need to sort of talk about the regimes that were in the other camps. They were, of course, sort of like very, very, very critical of them. And uh, I guess, yeah, that's, I mean, because later on, which is, uh, which is uh, the part I don't tackle, after when they go into the war, and they are part of uh, uh, the Lebanese national movement, Harak al-Watani which is this umbrella for uh, these sort of nationalist and uh, and uh, leftist groups, which had the Lebanese Communist Party, with its uh, Secretary General, George Howey, that also was assassinated in, in 2005, and uh, had the OECL and had basically Kamal Jumblat's sort of socialist party, the Morabiton, etc., then the political economy of the war becomes very different, and the other regional players, of course, uh, become part of it. I mean, the Syrians, of course, come in and sort of like against them, 76, but there's the Libyan regime as well that come, becomes a player. But yeah, and that's, I mean, there are some, I think Fawaz Tabusi in the history of modern Lebanon tackles a bit, it does tackles a bit of that political economy of the war, which sort of opens up very very different kinds of relationships that have to do with, again, uh, positions, funding, and and different practices. But that early uh, that early period, pre-war, when they were all still together before all these dissents, I mean, they were they were clearly, I think, against against these uh, these players. And of course, you know, the relationship with 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 Syria is also like a very different uh, ball game that needs needs much more, I think, work depending on the times. Do you mind if I just ask? Um, my my problem is that I don't understand really or follow what Ahlerara's critique of the left that he's criticising. That's my problem. I mean, I get. I, I mean, even this. I don't even this idea of power as dominance as being a sort of socio-political logic that governs the organising practices of these left yeah. groups that he opposes. Yeah. Um, and yet it's kind of these logics of dominance are produced by political parties, they're produced by sort of everything, there are customs, there are traditions, there's this, this sort of astonishing kind of determinism. Um, it seems to rely on his ability to have an Archimedean position which speaks and requires a new political practice which is somehow different mm -hmm. but and yet uh, I'm sure that every single one of his interlocutors would 
would, would say that they're not seeking to enact a political practice of dominance. It's not clear to me. I mean, there are big distinctions between those who worked with Zohar those who broke with some, I mean, even those who broke in the Palestinian refugee camps with the sort of Amin al-Husseini style of patronage politics, comes sure. out very clearly in Rosemary sure. Sayed's ethnography of, you know, suddenly the, the young men could speak, and, you know, a fraternal egalitarianism. And, I mean, why, and so it's just, it's such a, a, it's very difficult for me to grasp the critique and, and if it's true, then it must apply to Wadashirara. He also enacts a logic of dominance, because every other Lebanese seems to. And so how can he find the position to speak? And isn't he reproducing the same kind of... Because, you know, the abstraction that's required from, you know, the dismissal of all that is. I mean, it's, a, it's another gesture that, that's familiar in, in that left critique anyway. So I, I yeah, I, I, I do have problems understanding. I'd love to... See, I mean, I would like, you know, I'd just like to see it laid out a bit more so I, I grasp it and how, and how it really operates. Uh, yeah, I don't quite fully follow. And just one other thing, I, I'm a bit concerned about, we keep saying Christian, Muslim, uh, and, and the sectarian logic of the Civil War. I mean, the, you know, there are many logics that of were course, operative. Course, I mean, the Palestinian resistance, the, the geopolitics of Israel, the real politics of Syria, economic interests, the drugs trade, the arms trade, the... All the intra, you know, different factions and parties and Amal and Hezbollah. I mean, this isn't Muslim, Christian, or I mean, sectarians. Yes, sectarian, but speak to Osama Mukhtazi. I mean, sectarianism. What is it? Well, it's very slippery, very tricky. So, but anyway, that's that's a sort of an addendum. But anyway, I don't know if you can just try to just clarify a little bit of that logic. Look, I will. I will a bit. I mean, there's something to be. Uh, I mean, he he completely agrees. He's just saying that, that basically what he's trying to look at is the war as a social fact, which is like an implicit sort of like echo of Durkheim. He's like, of course, there's geopolitical influences. Of course, the political distinctions between the question of Arabism versus like Lebanese nationalism are important. Mm -hmm. However, and that's why I said uh, in the earlier that what he's making is a structuralist move. However, if we take a look at these differences, but then if we take a look at how is it that internally these camps are sort of like articulated? You realize that there is something there which is not there are let's say let's say you know you leftists you claim to basically be representing the masses all right but but there are masses on the other side as well. you claim that you claim that you are sort of, you know, working within ideological politics that represents the interests of the working class against the, the bourgeoisie. However, how how do you what do you make of the fact that sociologically speaking, most of the people who are fighting against you are of a particular sect? And most of the people well, who are—I mean, the Syrian intervention was uh, was was the, you know they were all Muslims, but they're you know fighting each other. No, no, but in, internal to, internal to Lebanon. But there was such a key ideological divisions between different groups, and uh, I mean, you've already mentioned. Well, all right, John, but how do you explain the fact that, like, after '82, for example, mm. or even before '82, like after after the Syrian intervention, if you want, mm. the forces that the trolls are forces whose politics are either very sectarian mm -hmm. or Islamist, such as, for example, Hezbollah, mm -hmm. 
earlier. So the, the question that he's asking is that, again, the question of the political constituency of the left. Did the left produce a counter-hegemony that seeks to bring people from different areas, different families, different regions, different sects, that are all in agreement on a project? Or does this project, whether it's you know, Lebanon's support of the Palestinian resistance, what, does it rest on people who come from particular sort of you know par particular backgrounds? And what does this do? What does this do to this project? So the, the, the content, the ideological content versus the form of practice—that's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. That takes on the ground, mm -hmm. and and he's saying that in the balance of power, at the end of the day, you can be as much you know as anti-imperialist as as you want, but if your anti-imperialism is not the result of people who, again, have broken with certain kinds of solidarity and have joined that camp. It's that camp that's going to be the sort of like the winning, the winning, the winning power at the end of the day. And that's what I mean. The reason why his critique is important is because what will happen subsequently in the Lebanese civil war and with the collapse of the left and with how it's going to. Lebanese politics is going to become more and more sectarian, and also you're going to have more and more fighting within sects as well, i.e., Christians fighting Christians and, and sort of like Muslims fighting Muslims and Shias fighting Shias. Underscore a lot of what he's trying to say about these these logics of subjugation and not having a, a sort of like a hegemonic project that is led by, you know, like a Gramscian sort of like a Gramscian class that sort of posits a horizon of what's taken for granted. Mm -hmm. While power functions really in terms of, like he says, you know, while hegemony presupposes a general political and ideological leadership that supplies the administrative and professional one with all-encompassing organizational criteria that conceals the basis of power, dominance, dominance contests itself with an external possession of instruments of power, armed forces, apparatuses, and share of production. So there's, I mean, for him, that that didn't work. So like Lebanese, the sort of like the the, the the Lebanese social structure is unified in that in that front. And I think the sort of the echoes of the two thousand and five again sort of ideas of what do you make of of the left that's allied with non leftist parties and that ends up always being marginalized. I mean that's what he's sort of like talking about because it's because the the the, the content and the forces are not mapping together. And that's why he criticizes in 1970 the Palestinian resistance for working with traditional leaderships. But he seems to be making a double move here. Sure. Because I, I mean, this is, this is one of the... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all for criticizing him. Yeah. Like, but yeah. I'm trying to sort of like, again, I'm like, I'm playing, I'm like be, being a historian of that period and trying to put that sort of like main theorization of the exit of the left. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I, I want to carry on the discussion, and we might have some questions. And if we do, you know, we can have a cup of tea or a or a pint in the George pub, and everybody's welcome. And we might even stretch to some uh, hospitality on that front. But um, I think we have to close because we've got to leave the room at six thirty. But uh, let's, you know, by all means, uh, uh, carry on the discussion. But uh, thank you very much for coming and engaging. Uh, everybody who wanted to speak at least got one chance. I know there were some of you who wanted to ask another question, but I. Don't and so, um, and thank you very much to Fouad Masalem as discussant, and very much to Fadi Maldouir for coming and giving us this extremely stimulating and erudite and important discussion. Thank you.